0: Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.
1: Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they d- develop to move forward and live their best life. I am Michelle Scharf.
3: And I am Jenny Taylor. And we are once again getting close to Memorial Day at the time of this recording. And we have today with us another Gold Star Widow. Linda Ambard, who is another of the families being um, spotlighted this month by an organization called the Unquiet Professional. Those of you who listened to Krista Anderson's interview a couple of weeks back, if you haven't, go find it on the list. It's fabulous. She is a Gold Star Widow whose husband was killed during a deployment, and he was known as the Unquiet Professional because he was just known for being just loving what he did in the military and she's carried on that legacy by being unquiet about the great good that a lot of military survivor families are doing in honor of their fallen hero. So Linda, thank you so much for joining us today and we appreciate your willingness to share a little of your story. Thank you for having me. We are just so looking forward to it. I've never met Linda. She actually lives in Japan, and Michelle and I both live in Utah, so there's a huge time difference. And it's the middle of the morning for us and the middle of the night for her. So we're going to let her maybe paint the picture a bit of a background of her story with her husband, Phil, their children, their life in the military, and maybe just paint us the picture of what life used to look like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So
2: when I met Phil, he was 21 years old, and he came strutting into the Mountain Home Air Force Base swimming pool in Idaho, and I wanted nothing to do with him. He (laughs) was full of himself. He was a weightlifter, and I felt like he was flirting with all of my friends. And I had three young children, and I um, was a single mom, and I really just was looking to get out of Mountain Home and get my life established for me and my kids. And he asked me out
3: 19 times
2: before I finally said yes. Not like, um, or, is that just I, hyperbole? I was,
3: is that hyperbole or really 19 times? It was really 19 times. Whoa, you! Are, I was he not. is persistent.
2: <laughs> he was. I was not counting, but he was. And on the t- we became friends over those 20 times of him asking me out. And it became a joke. And so when he asked me out on the 20th time, he said, Linda, I'm not going to ask you out again if you say no, we'll just be great friends because he was afraid at that point of ruining the friendship sure and phil spoke english as well as you and i but he was not an american citizen by birth but i didn't get to know that until a little bit later so i finally said yes and we eloped four months later
3: oh my goodness well that was yes quick. <laughs> okay and um, tell us because a lot of our listeners are here in utah not all but a lot where was that first date when you finally said yes
2: our first date was to Lagoon in Woo-hoo. Utah. We drove to Lagoon. <laughs> and, you know, by the, time the day, uh, by the time the day was over, we had so much fun together. And we had so much in common in terms of things that we liked. And we just, we were never part after that. We just fell wow. in love. And Lagoon was one of our favorite
3: spots ever. Oh, I love that. So you eloped four uh, months later. And, and then where did life take you in your early marriage years?
2: So, Phil, when I met him, was a young airman. He had just uh, sewn on um, A1C, which is E3, E3, which isn't much of rank at all. And he became the only father my three kids knew, and we became parents to two more children. We decided that um, I should stay at home because we wanted to have stability in our home, because we knew that he was going to deploy um, quite a bit. And he did. So French and Spanish were his first two languages. What most people don't know is Phil joined our military at the age of 18 to get his American citizenship. Wow. And he loved, he was actually from France and Venezuela. So French and Spanish were his first two languages. And again, when he came to the States at 12, he knew two words of English. "sometimas" for sometimes and USA for USA. Wow. And... When I met him, you would never have known English was not his first language. That's really? how good he was at languages. And so early on in our marriage, he deployed um, all the time to South America for the drug wars. Oh, wow. Um, he would be gone six months out of 12. And I was the parent that was at home with what started to be three kids. Two years later, we had number uh, our, our first one together. And 18 months later, we had another one to finish our family. Wow. And and the funny thing about that was, you know, he was gone six months a year, but when he was home, he was dad. He was full on dad. He was the father that showed up all the time. He'd be the one, even though I was nursing babies, we'd get the baby out of the crib, change the diaper, bring the baby to me, um, and then take the baby back to the crib when the baby was done nursing.
3: Oh, so he, sweet.
2: My kids never, he would never refer to my children by previous marriage as step anything. They were just his sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. And they never referred to him as step anything. And they were just brothers and sisters. So we created this really tight family unit. And a lot of that came down to he gave up his family pretty much to marry me because his family wasn't all on board with how fast he married me or. Um, the fact that I had three children by a previous marriage. Wow! And we were uh, best friends, and that never went away. It just—it was fun to be with him. So he spent 16 years enlisted, um, and then he spent 10 as an officer. He rose to um, a senior master sergeant select, and then he got his commission. The year before, actually the year that our son went to the Air Force Academy, our oldest son, Um, we have five children, four of them whom whom serve, and one who who is, uh, he got in to the Air Force Academy, but opted to do other things. And
3: Are they all Air Force, the four who serve, or different branches? No, we have one army. (sighs) You have to have one renegade everywhere. I know, I can feel the blood pressure kind of rise. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and
2: three of them are still in the military right now. One is okay. medically retired.
3: Okay. So tell us a little bit. This what year what year was your last baby born? When did you have that fifth child and now our family's complete? 92,
2: and we got okay. married in 88. Okay.
3: So here you are. You've got these five kids. He's deploying back and forth. Your by all intents and purposes, holding down the home front, where where did you live? Can you tell us a couple of the bases where you were assigned while he was deploying back and forth? Were you always at one, or did you also PCS around to different places during that time? We pcs around a lot. Uh, so we started in Mountain Home Air Force Base. And that's uh, in Idaho. To,
2: that's in Idaho, uh, where, where we got married. Then we went to New Mexico, El Magordo, New Mexico, and then we went to Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany, spang Air Force Base in Germany. And then we came to Hill.
3: Yay, Hill Air Force Base.
2: And loved Hill Air Force Base. And then we went to, um, let's see, Colorado, where they put him through a PhD. Not, well, he put him through a master's degree first. And he was such a popular Air Force Academy teacher and so good at teaching. And the reason why he was so good at teaching is he practiced kindness. Oftentimes, military officers and not all military officers, but oftentimes at the academies, they teach by intimidation. Sure. That was not Phil's style. Okay. He said that, you know, you can teach people and get more out of them through empathy and kindness than you can by hammering them. Oh, I love and that. So and and said, that's
3: very foreign in the military. I mean, that isn't always what it, it is. is. That'll stand out for sure.
2: And so he was the one that would sneak candy to the cadets. He'd have a coffee maker <laughs> in his office. And we had multiple cadets at our house. But his attitude was that it wasn't just about making a good military officer. It was about mentoring people in life to wow. be great husbands, fathers, friends, spouses, you know, just yeah. just the whole nine yards. And he that he didn't grow up in with strong parents in fact in our world in the us world we probably would have sent either phil to foster care or we would have um maybe put parents through parenting classes really it's not it's kind not of a rough the same background the,
3: yeah
2: very rough background and when-
3: when he came to the States, you said he was he was 12. Did his whole family come? Did he come with his parents and and live his, with them the no. rest of his childhood?
2: Well, so his parents split up when he was three. Okay. Or, or when he was six. Because in Venezuela, the, uh, the court system always awards custody to the mother unless the child is six. So oh, wow. when his parents split up when he was six years old and one day, his mom came to the States. Phil stayed in Venezuela. His father checked out because... He was, he dealt with the divorce so poorly. So his dad came to the States to get his PhD and he stayed with his grandmother and his Uncle Jock.
3: Hmm.
2: And when Phil was 12, grandma was not doing well with health. Um, Uncle Jock wasn't doing well with health. And so they sent him to the States to be with his father. And his father wasn't ready to be a full time father again. And so his father, Phil knew no English. His dad would leave him for large, long times by himself in Austin, Texas. Um, he didn't understand money. He didn't understand the language. And his dad would leave him for weeks on end.
3: Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow.
2: And, and there were times when <clears throat> Phil would scrounge through trash cans to get food. Um, he lived in an um, immigrant population uh, group, like a apartment complex. Sure and there were people that did look out for him he, he- actually learned to speak english by watching soap operas <laughs> and we- <laughs> which i've never watched them but he watched them oh that's funny and so when his dad was done with his phd program and was going back to venezuela at that point phil was a 16 and phil knew that he did not want to go back to venezuela he wanted to stay in the states and so Phil did go and move to be with his mother at that point. And he has um, two half sisters and he went to live with um, his sister and half sister and his mom and stepdad. And it wasn't, his mom was not a real engaged mother at all. Um, And I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to hurt Phil's sister. And, what happened was Phil was in high school and he walked to, um, he wanted the free lunch. The ROTC program was putting on a free lunch and he went to the lunch and he listened about, you know, going into the military. And he said, well, he, he talked to him afterwards and he said, well, I can't go into the military because I'm not a U.S. citizen. And the guy said, well, we can help you with that. <laughs> 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 Next thing you know, uh, Phil joined the military and he got a citizenship. It, it fast-tracked his citizenship. But he went, the whole idea was to do four years and get out. But in the military, he found the stability that he was looking for. He found the discipline that he was looking for. And, well, and then he found me in his first t- uh, tour. Yeah. And again, it wasn't supposed to be It was supposed to be four years and get out
3: and just be done
2: and, and go to school. And he decided to stay in because we had these four kids. Well, well, we had five kids, but we, we had four kids when he decided to stay in and it, and I gave up medical school to marry him because that was what I was going to do. And I never regretted it. I never looked back. I am thankful for all 23 years that we were married and it wasn't always easy financially or anything else. We didn't believe in handouts. So I'm sick of rice and beans. I can never eat rice and beans ever again. <laughs> I don't care how good you cook them. I don't want them. <laughs> um, it's still right. Way too many of those. <laughs> wow.
3: This is remarkable. I really appreciate getting to know you and Phil a little bit better. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we want you to tell us a little bit about what happened with Phil um, as the years went by and as he went on that fateful deployment. We'll be right back. All right. No worries.
1: I'm Dave Colley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold.
3: All right, Linda, can you tell us now a little bit about Phil in the military? What What did he do aside from being a teacher at the academy? What was his um, assignment or, or job work that he did there? And then can you tell us about his deployment to Afghanistan? Was it in 2010 or 2011 that he first went over to Afghanistan on that particular deployment? Okay, so it was 2011, but let me back up a little yeah, tiny please. bit. when he.
2: When he joined the military, he went into something called electronic combat range squadron, which is basically radar maintenance. Okay. And then he went in, he cross-trained into COM as an enlisted person. And then he went to COM um, as an officer. But the funny thing was he rarely worked COM because he was, so, he was deployed so often for his languages. Okay. They paid him for his languages and he deployed all of the time to... Uh, first, it was to South America, and then it was to Istras France. Uh, he was all over the place wow. doing that.
3: And in addition With, to Spanish and French, which were his native tongues, English, which he learned, of course, when he lived here, he also spoke several other, other languages, didn't he?
2: He did. And so he picked up languages like crazy. And part of it was he was a born mimic. So he would sit there and I never realized until right before he deployed how he learned languages. And he picked up uh different language tapes and he would listen to one word over and over and over again until he could say it just like they said it on the tape.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: can't even speak my own language well some days and he <laughs> would he could he just picked them up very very naturally and so he could fake it and Lots of languages. He could fake it in German. He could fake it in, um, we have Portuguese daughter-in-laws. He could, he could, he would practice because Portuguese is sort of a mix of a couple of languages for yeah, him. Yeah, totally. And he could carry on a conversation with our uh, daughter-in-laws. Italian, because he was deployed to Italy, which is very Spanish-based.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. That's um, Latin. Are some examples of that. He just loved languages. Wow. So tell and us what... what I really like about his languages, and I'll tell you one thing. And I'm sorry to interrupt. You. Oh no,
3: you keep going. We're, I'm loving this.
2: He noticed invisible people. You know, when he was at work, you know those people that come in and clean your offices, or those people that nobody else would see, like at grocery stores, or even the homeless people on the streets. And he would practice. He would go through all of his languages, trying to find out what languages they spoke. And then he would do, he would either bring them small little treats or small like sodas or cookies or different things just because nobody else saw them. And he remembered what it was like to be the invisible person when he came to the States. He remembered what it was like when we were enlisted and we had all these kids. We got treated like trailer court trash and we had people always asking us, if we knew what TVs were or birth control or things like that. Mm. Oh, wow. And people, people can be really unkind um, when you have a lot of kids and you're a young enlisted person. And we made the choice for me to stay at home. We made the choice to have these kids and never, never was sorry. But I, what I loved was as we moved up through the ranks and as Phil was able to financially help other people, I love that he didn't look for the people that could reward him or tell him thank, thank, thank you. He just looked for those people that needed it. And he reached out his hands and, you know, we were on vacation one year in New, New York city and they have this place called Magnolia's ba- bakery with cupcakes, you know, it's kind of like a sprinkles or whatever, really sure. expensive cupcakes. And there's a homeless guy that was outside and he wanted one of those cupcakes. He was begging for money. And Phil had him come into the store with him because he was going to let him pick out the cupcake. And the lady that was managing the store came up and she told the guy he had to leave. And Phil said, no, he's my guest. Mm-hmm. He's my guest. He's getting, um, we're going to get him a cupcake and we're going to get him a coffee. And that stuck with me a lot because I tend to cringe and move away from people that maybe don't behave um, necessarily the right way because a lot of homeless people have substance abuse problems. I tend to be worried that I'm going to catch something, and that's not who Phil was. He just stepped up to the plate, reached out his hand, and met them any way he could. And that's the person that he changed in me. He could have gotten out of the military well before he did, he was in 26 years before he was killed, and he was going to stand as long as they would have let him stand because he loved it that much. Wow. He he loved our country, and he always said that Americans lose sight of the freedoms and opportunities given to them by the, their American citizenship by birth. But when you're from a foreign country where the really wealthy have opportunities and everybody else doesn't. <laughs> There's no in-between ground.
3: Yeah. Well, who better and, to appreciate that American dream than someone who wasn't born into it and, and literally had to fight for it? I mean, he joined the military in, in exchange for that citizenship. That's beautiful.
1: That's awesome.
3: It
2: really is. And he raised our kids that way, that, you know what, if you don't want to be in the military, give something back a different way. You don't have to necessarily be in the military, but step up to the plate and share what you have. Give something back. And if you want to change people, then you can do that through empathy and through compassion. You can do that through education. Phil volunteered to go to Afghanistan. He volunteered to go to Afghanistan five days after he finished his Ph.D. And I didn't want him to go. I, I did not want him to go. And the Air Force Academy was telling him he didn't have to go. But he said, how can I mentor cadets, my own children, if I don't go? And not only that, if this was you, Linda, or our daughter, Linda, wouldn't you want somebody to come over and help make it better for our family? Wow. And that was why he volunteered to go. He, um, and for me, when he deployed, it was an inconvenience it was an inconvenience of a of a year out of my life it was not i worried more about him when he fought the drug wars than i ever worried about him going over to work with nato troops you know in a role of helping change their government and one of the, the person that assassinated him was somebody he ate lunch with often it was wow. somebody that he practiced his language skills with because this person had been in the Taliban—not Taliban, but in in the military for uh, the Afghan military for many years, fought the, Af- the the Taliban, and knew almost as many languages as Filma, oh and so goodness. they would practice their different languages. I knew about this guy; he, he told me about this guy, and wow. so it made it it made it so much worse when. Phil was assassinated and it
1: wasn't just Phil. There were, you know, there were nine of them. Um, so it wasn't Linda. I hate to interrupt you, but we need to take a break. And when we come back, let us have the story of, about how you, we need to back up a little bit. We kind of, you jumped into the story about how he, um, was assassinated. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's back up just a little bit and and tell us he gets to Afghanistan. When was this? And, um, and then, then explain to us what happened. Um, what were the events leading to what happened and what was the, the scenario? Okay. All right. Thanks.
3: Okay, Linda. So can you tell us, I, I love everything you've said about how he volunteered to go to Afghanistan, um, what a what a noble motive to want to set that example for his children, for the cadets that he's mentoring, that compulsion to serve, and not just to go and check it off the list, but I love how you said he wanted to be there because he knew he could make it better for NATO, for Afghanistan, for the governments. Can you tell us a little bit about that deployment and what happened that led to his being killed and, and the others that were killed that day, kind of what happened? Sure. So...
2: Phil was supposed to deploy Christmas Eve, and one of the gifts that happened was Europe was hammered with a major snowstorm, and it shut down the airports for well over a week. So it delayed his, it delayed him going until January
3: 11th. Oh, we got the holidays
2: st- together. We did, I and it delayed things enough where we got the holidays together. He got there January 11th. He was supposed to go to a place called Shindad. But when he got there, because of his languages, they diverted him to a place called Kandahar, which serves Kabul. I am geographically stupid. I didn't didn't realize that Kandahar was Kabul because I was expecting to go to a place called Shindad. And that's obviously not where he went. And so he gets there. And he's working with Afghan troops. He was there in a role of training and advising. And he was working that day with, um, well, the room was like a theater style room. And he, the civilian contractor, the only woman that was there, um, our our only woman that was killed that day, um, an enlisted person. We're working together with the Afghan military to help set up the communication links between a French clinic and, um, you know, the, the calm part of things. And this guy was somebody that was an Afghan pilot. We also had pilots in the room that were advising Afghan pilots, people in the room. There were a lot of NATO Afghan troops in the room. And they were we were not segregated, which kind of makes things a little bit worse about how things played out. Um, sure. Because there were twenty some Afghan troops in the room that day, and there was uh, there was eight of our people in the room that day, and we lost one more besides eight. But he was next door and came running to try to help our people.
3: Wow! Um,
2: and when he came in he came in with a weapon the sad thing is and this is part of the, my problem with what happened the nato troops that were in there the afghan troops that were in there the only injuries they got was from a ricochet bullet wound and a broken leg all of ours were shot multiple times bill was shot too many times to count
3: oh my goodness linda
2: and my issue, and I, I do struggle with this sometimes, my issue with it is how our people would have stood up for any one of their people because they had the, the NATO uniform on and not one of their people stood up for, that was in the room that day stood up for any one of ours.
0: Wow.
1: And So was this a planned attack then? Was it planned that these troops, or was it one bad actor? And Well, they say
2: that it was one bad actor, but I have a hard time believing that because Phil's weapon is still missing, so he had it out. His um, trigger finger was almost shot off. Um, I have a hard time believing that you could, you, you, since it wasn't segregated, Not one of the people in the room, I would say, would be standing around saying, get me next. Um, It was it was a big room and people were all over this room. And if none of the military people were hurt in this, it wasn't just somebody flipping out. Um, Our people would have run out, too. And I'm not I don't know. I will never know on this side of heaven. What happened that day? I, I won't. Um, nobody's talking. I believe there was collusion in that room, but I can't prove it, nor can any of the other surviving spouses prove it. But nobody would get that lucky to get nine people. Um,
3: and and our not people injure any of the others. Yeah, for sure. They yeah. didn't just stand there and take it. So you said there were nine killed that day. This yes. would have been. It when? was the
2: biggest loss since the Air Force loss since the Cobar Towers.
3: Oh my goodness. This was two thousand eleven what month? What time of year?
2: April twenty-seventh, two thousand and eleven. It's April. been ten years this year.
3: So tell us, so he left right after Christmas, so he's only a few months into this. Can you walk us through those the first days and weeks after losing him? And then like you just said, you've now had a decade. I wish we had hours and hours to go into this. Can you tell us a little about that immediate aftermath and then how you've chosen or maybe gotten yourself to take one step after another and, and, and kind of leave behind some of those unknowns, or even if you haven't fully left them behind, maybe not let them hold you too back from living the rest of your life. Can you tell us a little what that initial reaction was like?
2: it was pretty horrible. The air force does not have loss sense like, like other branches in the military. So we don't have practice with it. We're really great at funerals and we've come a long, long ways. Um, And I'll get a little bit more into that in a bit, but when I found out there were, there was media outside of my school, outside of my house and outside of my Colorado Springs airport. Well, what, a military officer accidentally gave it away without meaning to. Oh All goodness. she had to say was, "Today we lost one of our own." And she did that at ten thirty in the morning, and I didn't find out until one thirty something in the afternoon at my school. It took a nanosecond for them to figure out who it was that was lost from the Air Force Academy because Phil was deployed. Right. So, and then as I'm being notified, they're telling my my, my kids have already been notified. My kids ended up finding out on Facebook. They oh, ended up finding oh. out um, lots of different ways that they should, shouldn't should have found out. Then you add in the fact that they dropped me off at an empty house without anybody there to help me, support me, um, help me make those phone calls, um, navigate the people that were beating on my doors or the media, sure. uh, any of it. And nobody has practiced with this. Not nobody whatsoever. So they, my kids are flying from all over the world because for their father to meet us at Dover. We get to um, Texas um, on our way to Dover, and I go to use my credit card, and my all my credit cards are frozen.
3: Oh my goodness!
2: Um. All my credit cards are frozen. I have forty dollars in my purse, and oh by the, and oh by the way, all my bank accounts are frozen, including the one where my teacher salary just got dumped in.
3: And no military um, escort on that trip to Dover.
2: N- no military escort on that trip to Dover.
3: Going. No. So you were facing all of that: banks freezing, cards not working, uncertainty and then hours right after your husband's killed and you're for all intents and purposes by yourself
2: I couldn't I had my two youngest sons with me it was overwhelming to me I hadn't cried in 42 years and I couldn't stop crying and everybody's staring at you in the airplane
1: yeah
2: um my phone is ringing off the hook because you know people the media knew had my number they were able to figure out my number because it wasn't it was listed.
3: Mm.
2: Um, How old were my the blanket, two boys,
3: the younger boys?
2: My youngest son had just turned 18, like a week before his father was killed.
3: Okay.
2: The other one was 19. 18
3: and 19.
2: And then um, my oldest child at the time was um, 27. Wow. And so, and they're in... For my kids are military uniforms, which puts a whole new layer on it because you can't grieve. You cannot grieve like the child that you are. You have to grieve like the uniform. And well, I want to go back to my bank account getting frozen. We have USAA, which is something that most military people have for banking business. And we do everything online. And although Colorado is a no probate state, and I had an active will, the reason why our stuff froze was because we had one username and one password. And while we could have used, while we could have had um, the same password, we needed two usernames because as soon as the person that is, that set up the account dies, they freeze everything until you have a death certificate.
3: Yep, Totally.
2: And so I did not have a death certificate. You you get a form 1300 when they're killed overseas like that. Right. And that didn't come until much later. Much later. So I had no access to any of my bank accounts. And oh, by the way, they dumped the death gratuity, the stuff that's supposed to help you those first two days, or those first few days. They dumped it all into the accounts that I couldn't get into. That it. got frozen. They got frozen. And so I couldn't access anything. I couldn't access my teacher salary. I couldn't access any of it. Um, get to Dover and you get the, you get people picketing because people have mixed feelings about military.
3: Sure.
2: Yeah. So you have the West, Westboro, Yahoo, Baptist people picketing all over the place. And then you have, um, The Patriot Riders, I never knew about the Patriot Riders until then. And the Patriot Riders, what a wonderful organization, those
3: (laughs) those motorcycle people. Yep. Um, They showed they've got your back.
2: They got your back. And they were wonderful. And that was the first time I'd ever had any exposure to them. And I will say, one of the neat things that you, so as a mom, you can't fix the hurts in yourself. So how can you fix the hurts in your own children? And you feel so alone. Nobody has practiced with this. I wasn't quite 50 yet. I was overwhelmed by how my feelings and I couldn't get it together. I couldn't even choke down food. And you're having to make rapid decisions all the time. And it's the one person, I didn't have a close-knit group of female friends or anybody My own parents hadn't buried people like this either yet. Um, So you're learning on the fly when your brain doesn't work anymore. But I will say one of the nicest things that somebody did for me, and she didn't know me at the time. She had done a little bit of research for me on me. And she said, Linda, I know you don't feel like running today. I know you can barely stand up, but it will be easier to do this dignified transfer for you if you get outside. If you get outside and if all you do is walk, it will be a little bit easier um, on you. And she said, "I'm going to sit at the. I'm going to sit at the um, trailhead. You call me when you're ready. I will find you. Don't worry about it. Just go. And in the ten miles that I ran that day, and it took a long time. I was able to get control of my feelings enough to be able to plan how I wanted Phil's funeral to look. I knew that the military knew Phil as a military hero, but they didn't know him as a husband, father, American citizen that taught me to love my own country based on his service to the military. We were involved in every aspect of our kids' life to include Boy Scouts, church, church, um, I worked at the Y part time. I coached. He was involved in all of that. I sub. I taught school and while he was getting his PhD, he substitute taught every single day that he could. So all of the students knew him all over the Colorado Springs. And I needed for those kids and all those cadets. I needed for them not to be afraid to understand who Phil was separate from the military because he was something special that comes around. Not everybody's like that. And so that 10 miles allowed me to get control of my feelings, um, fall into my faith and to figure out what I wanted it to look like since it couldn't be an open casket um, funeral. And that was, that was probably the first besides falling into my faith, which was my first, I would say my first way to come forward, my first resiliency step. The second one was running because it allowed me to fall into my faith and it allowed me distance from all the prying eyes and everybody else. Um, we get back over and we get to Phil's funeral. And I, I know I'm switching back and forth a little bit, but to give you an idea how many things went wrong, I show up at his funeral. And I had to top my way onto my own husband's funeral. And the reason why I had to top my way onto my own husband's funeral is um, Osama bin Laden was killed the day before Phil's funeral. And so he was the first of the nine that was buried. Show up at the Air Force Academy they're in Threat con Charlie, which is not good. You have to have lots of identification, military ID card to get on base or be on the list of people coming on base for a funeral and be vetted. The Air Force had absolutely miscoded Phil's death. So it showed that he was separated from the military after 26 years with no benefits.
3: Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's a problem.
2: And, yeah. And so we are in the limo going to the funeral. And they say, ma'am, you can't. Your ID card isn't any good anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? You know, let me on, on, look at the flag. Google me if you have to look at the name. Um, I'd like to go to my husband's funeral. And how did I know my kids were going to be okay? And I will tell you this in this moment, my kids are like, mom, mom, get out of the car. We'll pick you up after dad's funeral. Oh and they gosh. started to laugh. Now, genuine humor in the middle of your darkest hours. Yep. The, you know, the, <laughs> the humor that you don't have to fake. This has to be genuine humor. There's no
3: other way to get through it sometimes than to just laugh.
2: Yes, and they did laugh. And I will tell you, it's part of spiritual resiliency, actually, because humor produces optimism. Optimism produces hope. And hope falls under the spiritual uh, resiliency paradigm. And yes, they did let me on to his funeral. And yes, we did get through it. And I remember that moment so vividly. Because it took a long time to feel anything, I got really numb. um, Because it was it was a way I protected myself. I was going through some. I was in so much pain. I cried, which was overwhelming to me because I hadn't cried in so many years. I struggled with connecting with my own kids. They struggled with connecting with me, and we had always had that close knit family. because you think you know who's going to be there during the hard times. But the problem is people don't know what to say to you. They, You're the visible reminder of what could happen to their spouses, you know, when you've been in the military this long. And then, you know, my personal favorite is sometimes they think your moral compass is going to change because you're suddenly single. And so they think that you're going to hit on their spouses. And with your kids, your, your kids are hurting, and they don't want to hurt you anymore, so they pull away, and pretty soon what you had and what you valued goes, goes away, too. Um, our close-knit family, it's taken quite a few years to work back to that, and I, I still wouldn't say it's what it was, but we are still working on it, and part of that is my kids were out of the house. So it wasn't like they were at home grieving. Um, Some of my friends, my children's friends, told them they were getting things in the military only because of how their father died. My own mom didn't know what to say, so she forwarded me prayer emails for an entire year. And for the record, that's not helpful, but she didn't know what else to do. But she didn't know,
3: yeah. No. Linda, can Um, you tell us, what what would you say resilience is... You've had 10 years off to a really rough start of things not necessarily going in a helpful way, not finding the resources, the military, obviously a lot of mishaps and things. You've got the political environment about war, Osama bin Laden's death at the same time, other families grieving from the same tragedy. You you found your faith, you found your running. It's 10 years later. Can you tell us what resilience has looked like for you or what it looks like today?
2: <laughs> that's my job. Actually. I work in resiliency.
3: Oh, that's it awesome. changed.
2: It changed everything for me. So I was a teacher and let me tell you where it sort of started for me and why I'm not in Colorado right now. I love teaching. I really love teaching. I love youth. I love coaching. I love making a difference with kids. And when Phil died, My first day back at work and I did go back to work five days after his funeral. Nobody knew what to say to me. None of the teachers knew what to say to me. Um, The parents didn't know what to say to me. And this little first grader came up to me and said, how did Mr. A die? And I'm sitting there and I'm not sure what to say. He's a first grader. And he says, well, Mr. A got shot at or stabbed. And then he says, Mr. A was Air Force, so he probably got at My daddy's Air Force. I, I hope my daddy doesn't get shotted. It changed me. I knew I needed to leave Colorado so that my students could heal, my school could heal, my community could heal. And it was ne- I was never supposed to go back to Colorado Springs at that point. We were. This was not going to be my retirement place. And so I went to a place called Ansbach, Germany to teach. And while I was there, I was writing about all the things I was processing and going through because people wanted to know how I felt. And I was so far away from everybody. And I posted it on Facebook because at the time I had 26 friends. I had 26 friends and some of, you know, five were my kids. One was my mom. A couple were my aunts, you know, people like that. And people kept sharing my blog and Pretty soon, um, somebody wanted to publish those blogs. I didn't want to make money off of Phil's death. And so I went looking for an organization and found TAPS, the Tragedy Assistance Program. And the Tragedy Assistance Program, um, initially, it was just supposed to be about me donating the money that I made off of it. Well, then I started running and for TAPS, and then I started writing for TAPS and I became a peer mentor for TAPS. And what it did was I knew that I didn't want my life. I knew really early on if I quit living and I, I always say this uh, and I, and I don't know if you're going to have to bleep out this word, the damn assassin was going to get me too. And I didn't want that. I wanted to, I knew that the best way that I could, you know, terrorism seeks to destroy lives by taking them and destroying the human spirit. And I was fighting for it. I was fighting for it every way that I could. And TAPS became a part of me fighting by thriving, learning to thrive. And it's not. it was not easy. I, I still fall down. I still have my moments. Um, I still have my insecurities and doubts. I still fear. Um, What And so I got offered a job to go back to being a, a youth center director for the military. And while I was there, I was looking for something else because people kept asking me to speak on military loss. And they kept acting like I was a subject matter expert. And I didn't feel like the subject matter expert. I just felt like a grieving widow. And so I was considering what to do. And I, asked, I got um, volunteered to go to this resiliency class for the Air Force. And while I was there, it resonated in me so much that I went back and got a fourth master's degree in something called military resiliency counseling. And I started researching the impact of military service on our families and positive trauma growth. And the element of resiliency that we forget, there is an element of choice. I can't control the cards I've been dealt, but I can't control how I wanna play them. And initially when you're going through your trauma, you're breathing through it one second at a time, one minute at a time, one hour at a time, one day at a time, one mile at a time, one marathon at a time. I've done over 200 marathons and there's never one of them I haven't wanted to quit. They hurt. A marathon is 26.2 miles. They hurt bad, and I know it's going to hurt worse the next day and worse the day after. But I also know that if I look only at the step in front of me, if I look only at going forward, moving forward, I might fall down. I might get lost. I might need to phone a friend to help me get through the pain. I might need to stop us for a little bit. I can get to the finish line. And that's the way my grief journey became became during this time was about, all right, if I fall down, not looking and beating myself up over it so much, but looking at getting back up on my knees, getting back up and fighting for it. And I didn't want to just fight to survive. I wanted to fight to thrive. And that came at the two-year mark. At the two-year mark, I was running the Boston Marathon to honor my husband. And I was at the 26-mile mark when the first bomb went off. I could see the finish line. I was happy. I was honoring Phil with my running because I run with a full American flag and his picture um, as a way to bring awareness to our military loss and to our military families. Oh, we're getting another plane. <laughs> um, and and as I was processing what that meant, the second bomb went off and I had a front row seat to everything. I ran for my life. I. Ran, I can't tell you how I got to the Dunkin' Donuts store a half a mile away. I can't tell you. I mean, I was in shock, totally in shock. It brought all the fear and all the emotions from Phil's death back to me. And I I can't even begin to tell you all my nightmares come from that moment. But here's what I can tell you. Something happened to me that day, and it was this. I cannot let terrorism take any more from me. I can't let them rob me of what life I have left. And I began to fight for it. And I began to fight hard to take back my finish line. And that's why I keep calling it. And the only way to take back my finish line is to face my fears. The only way to take back my finish line is to do some of the things I don't want to do. The only way to take back my finish line is to educate people on what military service really means. Because, will people know my loss. There's a lot of things that go into military service. When you have kids that are moving for the third time during their high school years, or when you have a, a spouse that consistently gives up her friends and her houses and her, her career to move all over the world. And when you're, somebody needs to be internal and talking about the cost of military service and talking about what do we do to shore up our families, strengthen our families, and to a realistic view of what resiliency should look like. And it shouldn't be death by PowerPoint. It should be through intentional storytelling where we match, we weave the resiliency skills within it. We should be matching them with the helping agencies so that We normalize mental health care.
3: We should be
2: talking about, you know, we, we all go through things. We all have our moments. We all are on our knees at times. You know, there are some choices. There are choices in it. And sometimes it's about just being strong enough to go and get help. Sometimes it's just about being strong enough to get back up every day and say, I don't understand What's going on in my life right now? I can't control anything that's going on in my life right now. But you know what? I'm going to get up today. I'm going to get outside because when I'm outside, I'm not surrounded by all my horrible memories. I'm not surrounded by bad options or options to do self-harm. I'm not surrounded by options to make unhealthy choices. Right. And my work became about helping other people that are going through something, whether it be something like mine or a different body slam, because it's not a matter of if, but when we all have some type of body slam. And it has become my way of honoring Phil, my way of learning to thrive versus just survive. And the second part of learning to thrive versus just survive is I said, you know, I got to stop living in fear. I'm going to take back my world by running all over the world. I'm going to run a marathon on all seven continents. I'm going to carry the full American flag across the finish line. And I'm going to thumb my nose and show my shoe with terrorists as I do it. I, and I don't literally do that, but it's
1: about the, but that energetic, right. That energetic force of I'm taking over. This has been a powerful, powerful story. Um, just intense and shocking. Um, um, not only. Could for, I share one more thing? Um, we I have time. Uh, we are. We're actually over time, but um, yeah, oh, if you could, if you, if you could <laughs> I'll, I'll, share it quickly. <laughs> I can't,
2: I promise. And it's, it's part of the, it's part of the way forward. I've chosen to forgive Phil's assassin. And the reason why I did that was not because his assassin needs it. And it's not because anybody else needs it. It's so that I can take back my life and forgiveness is not linear. Some days you forgive and some days you fall right back down. But forgiveness is an important part of the journey for me because then I'm not sitting here fixated on, on one person. It's about what I need to do to be healthy.
1: Well, that's awesome. You have highlighted so many um, amazing qualities of what resiliency is, uh, what you just talked about is not finding uh, something to blame. It would be easy to stay in the anger and the blame at that assassin, but to be able to forgive and be able to choose forgiveness and move forward, that that's huge. And I'm sure that that took time to in coming. But it's it's an amazing step in resiliency. I love what you said about laughter inspires optimism and optimism inspires hope. That's sometimes um, we do have to find the humor, even if that sometimes... Jenny and I refer to it as sometimes the grave hu- humor and things like o- only another <laughs> widow would appreciate this humor. Yes. Someone else <laughs> might find
3: it a little off color,
1: <laughs> a little bit. Uh, see, I like you, ladies. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and and you know, there's a lot of things that you covered about resiliency, being able to motivate yourself, finding what helped you to move forward. Um, which literally was running and moving forward. Um, the fact that you're empathetic and that you were concerned about your community and the ability for your kids in Colorado to be able to have space and room to be able to heal and not be fixated on concerns or fears. Just, you've highlighted so many things, being realistic about the situation, um, being able to be calm in, in this stressful situations, uh, not having access to the bank accounts not having um not being on the list for your own husband's funeral i mean just you have highlighted so uh, just about every step of resiliency i could highlight and point out in in this story so i really appreciate hearing your story having you share it with us today um just really beautiful i i really appreciate you coming on and being so open i wish we had more time because just like all of us i mean some of us don't have a husband that served 26 years and lost his life to an assassin in, in in military service that's that's just a rarity but we all are struggling with really hard and difficult things in our life and and they don't go away right it's it's not no. nobody has just one story to come and share on the show we all have multiple stories and they oftentimes compound, um, talking about your adult children and their grief and how, you know, adult children grieve differently than young children. And I'm, I'm experiencing that with my own children and the loss of their father and the differences with my grandchildren who are very verbal and are able to articulate their feelings. Whereas the adult children have a lot of things that they're processing and, and it creates a lot of other issues. And, um, so, I mean, you've just brought up so many concepts and I wish we had more time. We, we are actually over our time and we, we need to close this today, but I just really appreciate you coming on and sharing so lovely and, and openly and honestly with us. And, uh, I appreciate, uh, hearing all of the steps of resiliency in your life. It's, it's empowering and it's inspiring
3: it it has been great to talk to you, Linda, and af- offline we'll get a few pictures from you, and I'd love to know a little more about the book you wrote. I think several of our li- listeners might be interested in, like Michelle said, having more time to get more of the story. And to any of our listeners who are listening and might feel like you've got a story to share about real people facing real-life challenges and how they've found and just created the resiliency to move forward, we would love to hear from you You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient. And we would love to either tell your story or the story of someone you know who has just really proven to be relentlessly resilient.
1: Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Thank you. Have a great day.